how to manage fab over the course of a season, park factors, auction valuation, your questions, and much, much more. Todd Zola joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruben Guy. How are you, Ruben? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Sounds like Major League Baseball has informed their players and teams that they are planning at the moment to have a 162-game season. Uh, think that'll happen, Ruben? I hope so. I mean, if they keep the the way they were doing it last year, they were perfectly fine. It seemed to have lasted. I mean, they had a couple of outbreaks, but I think it's doable. It's definitely doable, and that would mean that spring training is about a month away. Well, tonight's guest on the show, he writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, he writes for ESPN, and he's being inducted into the FSWA Hall of Fame this year. Welcome to the Beat the Shift podcast, Todd Zola. How are you, Todd? Good evening, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? I'm doing fine. Doing great over here. Yeah. So as customary, we jump right into it on the show. In our strategy section tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about park factors, um, what goes into projections. And Todd, you are someone who does make your own projections here. Um, can you explain to the audience what are pa park factors? How do you use them during your process of creating player projections? All right. So park factors or park indices, whichever, you know, they're both the same. I'll use them interchangeably you know parts are parks come in different shapes and sizes they're at different uh atmospheric conditions as far as altitude and pressure and temperature and and, and stuff like that so the, the 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 ball a ball hit the same way in 30 parks isn't going to have the same outcome in all 30 parks so what a park factor is what they do is they normalize all the different stats you I mean you can you, you we talk about home runs and runs but you can have a park factor for errors a park factor for foul pop-ups there's the strikeouts walks etc for any any statistic and it, it it essentially compares what happens in the home park to what happens in the road park and by that what I mean is it's 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 you need to flesh out the team bias so you compare what the home team's batters do and the opposing team's batters do in that in their home park and you compare that to what the home what the well not the home team but what the the team and the specific teams batters do on the road and what their pitchers give up on the road so the opponent's stats get factored in and that, that way the at least it's supposed to be the quality of the team you know, a park factor is supposed to be independent of the quality of the team. So that's the the, the, the the formula. It's supposed to flesh it out, the quality. It doesn't always flesh it out 100%, but uh, that's so it's that's the it. So it's most important when players are changing because if players have been with the same team, the parks, well, they don't stay the same, but it, it's close enough. You don't have to worry too much about it. But um it just helps us when players change teams to get a feel for how their power may play or a pitcher, how many runs they may give up when they change teams. So 
Um, what time frame are statistics computed to generate these park factors? Because on one hand, you know, you want to have the fact that, you know, Colorado's been around for a while, and the more data you have for it going back, the better you would get. But on the other hand, you have different players who are playing for the Rockies at any point in time. If you take too large a sample, you might be a little bit influenced by the quality of the team in general. So, well, no, 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 not, that's the point. You're, that's, that's okay. You're not. That's at least on paper. You're not. Okay. Okay. So, so what is the time frame that 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 it's taken? Is it a ten year history or something like that? Uh, conventionally, the the park factors are a a three year average. At least the the most respected source of park factors uses a three year average. You can use whatever you want, but what just the fact that you need to use it? Well, just the fact that you have to keep computing it every year shows you just, I mean, it's kind of intuitively, they're not very stable and they're, they're, there's variance. They shouldn't, the park is the park is the park. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the weather changes, uh, et cetera. And, you know, I keep you know, talking about flushing out team bias. It doesn't really, you know, I can give a, you know, a hyperbolic example of what I mean by that. But um, the, uh, you, you fundamentally use a three-year average uh, that's the, at least that's what the the, the best accepted uh, baseball uh, Bill James handbook from Baseball Info Solutions is kind of the in industry standard is the word I've been looking for, and those they use a three year average. And when the teams when the teams change the 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 walls like they bring the walls on like in Miami, do they does that factor in at all? Do you see the do you see that um react? Do you see the um the change immediately in in the in the numbers, or does it take a while for it to compile? Well, it, what it, it, the problem there is you you only use the data of the the new the new the new renovation of the new park or you know you, even a new park a park that's only been around Globe Life Field or Sun I think now it's truest however long I don't know if it's been around three years but when they compute their park factors they only compute them for the 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 most recent renovation because it's in theory it's a new park. So a one year or two, a park factor based on one year or two years of data, it's not, even three years, it's, you know, how trustworthy is it? It's even less, less trustworthy. And in, in general, do different parks affect different statistics? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, we talk about Colorado, um, that affects both runs and hits, uh, sorry, runs and home runs. Now the thing the thing about park factors that people don't understand or it's not intuitive or you know they it's it, it, it's it's kind of a way to find an edge. There are some parks that are home run parks, but actually suppress runs because parks with with shorter fences, the outfielders can play a little bit in, and most home, most balls that do not leave the yard are outs. Whereas in some of the bigger parks, the when the balls don't leave the yard they they fall in so there's some parks that you know Coughlin Stadium is good for runs but it suppresses homers because of all the doubles and triples and fly ball uh, base hits that that aren't caught but you know, other parks like Yankee Stadium uh, guaranteed rate field they are home run parks but they suppress runs so you know you don't I don't want to start a pitcher in Yankee Stadium because it's a hitter's park no actually it isn't and I, I don't want to pick up uh, Lucas Giolito because he pitches in a hitter's park. Actually, he doesn't. So it's 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 especially you know in the in the DFS game, but it also matters you know when you're thinking about pitchers in general. 
there are just some parks that are counterintuitive. And Fenway Park, you, it's believe it, you know, I don't actually, I, like you guys probably do believe it. It's one of the harder parks to hit home runs in at this point. But with the wall giving up so many extra hits and taking away outs, it's a great hitter's park. Right, right. No, and this is exactly why we're having this conversation, because it is important to understand the difference between that. There can even be a park factor for strikeouts. You can have a, a hitter's well, there park. Is not even, there is. Yeah, there is, yeah. You you can have a park that is fantastic at, at giving up homers, but also produces more pitcher strikeouts. So uh, you can you can People use that. always ask me about that, because they always tweet out when a pitcher moves to a new team. I always tweet out his strikeouts go up and down, and they ask why. Things such as the quality of the batter's eye, which is the center the center field background. Yeah, they differ by parks. The number, the, the amount of foul territory, uh, helps or helps or hurts uh, pop up. You know, pop ups being caught or not being caught, an extra strike or an extra out, uh, impact uh, effect. I don't use the word impact because it's not really right. Affect strikeouts and uh, 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 altitude conditions. Ball higher the altitude, the less the ball breaks more likely to make contact, so there's fewer strikeouts. So it's the, the variance is isn't that much. But when you know when you're looking you know, twenty strikeouts, fifteen strikeouts for a pitcher, he could jump up in rank, especially if you're looking for a strikeout pitcher and your ratios are set and you just want a, mo- a few more strikeouts, this is where they uh, they do come into play. And right. especially in daily games. Couple of questions about uh, how you would do new situ- new situations as far as park factors. What do you do for the unknown parks? Ruben mentioned, you know, the the Marlins walls coming in, or l- l- last year where the Blue Jays played at Buffalo, or maybe the situation a couple of years ago where Arizona went to the Humidor, uh, where you you just don't know what they're doing for the next season. Do you have to rely on some physics engineering data? Do you estimate it at at a neutral level? Like, what do you do in a new situation? Yeah, at that point you do you look for you look for similar parks and hope they play similar. You look for similar altitude and similar atmospheric conditions. It's a guess. It's it's there's some science involved if you can find similarities, but it, it, at the end of the day it's a guess. And I mean you mentioned the humidor, it actually applied because we had some data from Colorado how much it changed. So as I, I went through the the data there and applied how much the the change and applied that to Chase Field and came up actually came up pretty close as far as estimating how it play, how it would play. Now you also mentioned the humidor lost lost in last season was the fact that it came out kind of under the radar that Fenway Park, I think City Field, I think it was it's not what not Safeco uh, T-Mobile, I think the, the, I know City Field and I know Fenway Park. I think it was uh, T-Mobile. I'll use the humidor last year. Humidor. Interesting. And we didn't even know it. It was just it's just crazy. I don't did they use it the whole year? I, I mean, but it's kind of it came out like under the radar, and so you know those those parks now are you know we talk about some of the Red Sox batters, etc. Et and, and City Field is already the best pitchers park in the league, and now they're making balls even go you know fur, fly even you know shorter distances. I mean, what what was that all about? Huh. So I found that to be interesting. Although some people think it's a precursor to the entire league using a humidor that'll throw everything up in the air but you know that's just another you're talking about short data from last year that's just another factor for what it's worth maybe you're going to ask me i don't know but i'm completely disregarding 2020 park factors the research i've shown says that two months is not enough data to generate 
a, a, a trustworthy response, not that response, a trustworthy index. Because I, I looked at data from previous years and did two months worth of park factors, and they were just nowhere near the factor at the end of the year. So even for parks that have been stable, if you will, I'm just completely disregarding now the, men, the source I mentioned, Bill James Handbook, uh, does come out with park factors incorporating last year. It kind of disappointed me a little bit, but they, you know, it's their book. They can do what they want. But I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with the previous year's park factors in my current projections. Right. Okay. So, what do you do in the case of an unsigned free agent? So, you know, if I'm if I'm projecting somebody and I have no idea where they're going to sign, I guess you would have to use an MLB average park factor. Although, if you had a player who's more of a DH type, let's say Carlos Santana is signing somewhere, I would probably use an AL average park. I'm just curious what what you would be doing and if it would be something similar. Well, the average is the, the average for AL and NL is just around 100 anyway. So, okay, okay. Um, basically, 100 is a neutral factor. So, I, yeah. I project them exactly that as if they're playing in a, a park that's 100 across the board. Uh, I mean, you can make an argument that a player like Nelson Cruz is going to sign with a good team and possibly in a, in a good park. But I just I just keep the free agent numbers at 100. And it's to be honest, it's, it's one, re- I think that's one reason why. I, actually, I know. Well, actually, you know, Marcel Ozuna is a good example. He, I, I, you know, my raw rankings have him rated higher than the market right now, because all but last year, he's played in pitchers' parks, uh, Bush Stadium, Marlins Park, or at least power suppressing parks, and he's he's hit a lot of homers. So when you neutralize those, when you take it, you know, whatever it is, thirty homers a year and you put him in a neutral park, I'm going to project him for like 33 homers, and it pushes him up my rankings. You know, Atlanta was a good hitter's park last year, but uh, the point being, people may look at my projection and go, why is that his average? If you take a three-year average, it's this number, and you're projecting more. Well, I'm projecting more because he hit those other homers in hard parks hard to hit homers in. So Azuna right now is projected as a free agent, I mentioned Nelson Cruz, and the same with pitching. The pitchers, I guess right now, just Trevor Bauer. That's the biggie. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, some other, there's some other guys out there. But, uh, you know, Bauer is projected to be in a neutral park. It depends on where he goes. Actually, where he's in the rankings, a park's only going to lift him plus or minus one spot probably. But, you know, for those middle of the middle of the middle, you know, for Corey, I think it matters for Corey Kluber, for instance. By the way, uh, just to point out, and uh, congrats in person here, um, two years ago in the TGFBI, you were the winner, and Ruvain on the show here actually came in second. So a couple of good guys, couple couple of good players we have on tonight. Yeah, well, you know, in, 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 unfortunately, Ruben, I was able to make it through the whole year and, and do with my duties so you didn't have to take over. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Know, you. I, I was able to go on yeah. tour and, and make all the appearances, and you know, I was on the Tonight Show <laughs> and was able to do all that sort of stuff. So I, I'm sorry about that. I know if the odds were that I, you know, collapse at some point, but it just didn't happen. It, it's fine because I was giving myself a haircut for the last six months, so it's perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, some other macro influences on projections. We were talking about the AL versus NL, and uh, what's a hot topic now is the designated hitter. Uh, at the moment, currently, it, the rule is that there is no designator of use in the National League, although uh, many sources, including I heard Ken Rosenthal talk the other day, believe that it will happen this year as well. As a projector, which you are, 
what do you do? How do you handle it? Because obviously there's going to be a projection with and without. Are you going more and picking the one with the designated hitter? Are you doing uh, an average split? Are you just tilting more for a 75-25 chance? Uh, what are you doing and, and presenting on your site? I've, uh, I'm, pro- I'm, pro- I'm projecting designated hitter, and I, I've, I've told my users that, and they understand it. And if they don't believe there's a designated hitter, they'll, they, they, in theory anyway, sh- should know the batters to you know downgrade a bit. And I'll tell you though, it's everybody talks about you know Dominic Smith and and Kyle Schwarber. The it matters. I don't want to say more. It matters for a certain few hitters that are going to be more important, but it matters for the pitching. And I don't know uh, if you guys tracked last year, the AL ERA was lower than That's the right. NL. Yep, yep. And it's it's I you know predict, predicted that by looking at past data, and what would happen when the NL got hitters instead of pitchers now and you know it's only 60 games but when you're talking about 60 games for 15 teams now you do have enough data to make this observation you know be real if you will so the the you know the point being if you're doing projections and you believe there's going to be a dh and you're looking at x amount of years of previous data for pitchers you have to make an adjustment on NL pitching as if there was a DH and use that in your, in your foundational average. Um, and it, and it does ding NL pitching enough that again, the, the top guys are the top guys. Uh, they're not going to be affected by more than one or two ranking spots, which is nothing uh, at that point. But once you get to the middle of the pack, you know, I, I forget what the exact number was last year. I think it's something like, I had like, of course, everybody's numbers are different. I think I had 57 of the top 100 pitchers in the AL, and it's usually the opposite in previous seasons. So to me, you know, all right, we know that we got to be careful with Dominic Smith and J.D. Davis or uh, Kyle Schwar. Well, Sharber's going to play. Some of these other players that are going to benefit, maybe Buster Posey plays more if there's yeah. a DH because he doesn't have to catch as much. I think we can we, we know what to do there. But we're not sure what to do with those middle pitchers. I mean, that, to me, that's the bigger area of concern, especially because, as you guys know, you just can't afford to make sta- make a mistake with pitching in today's game. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in 2018, there were 6,100, about 6,100 home runs. 2019, there was 6,700. And if you could extrapolate last year's total of 2,304 to a full season, it's around 6,900. Do you think that the ball's still going to be juiced? Are we still playing within that type of home run environment also in this coming year? Well, I mean, I, I know with, with semantics here, the ball isn't juiced. I mean, that makes, what I'm saying by that is, that makes it intuitive semantics intuitively makes it sound like it's bouncier but what the ball is such that there's less air resistance and that's what happened in 2019 that uh with with the seams and some other things the the weight distribution the ball incurred less air resistance so i understand i mean i know everybody calls it juice but i just kind of want to make that that distinction a little bit i don't know and and so i'm not I'm letting the three-year, I'm letting the weighted average do the work for me because some of the numbers, we're still pulling in some of the numbers from 2018. So I'm using that as the hedge. And I know 2018 doesn't get counted as much, 
uh, with, with most people when they use weighted averages, it's it's uh, they use the, the more recent years to give them more weight. But even so, to me, that it, it's it's that's that you know if I'm going to figure out is it 85 percent chance, 80 percent chance, that is is baked into using 2018 as part of the foundation for the projections. Okay, because it's also true with doubles because it's not just the home runs, it's the doubles. In 2018, 8,200 doubles. 2019, 8,500 doubles. And if you extrapolate out, it's going to be an, again be an 8,500 doubles. So it's not just home runs; it's the it's hitting for power. It's not just the home runs. The ball traveled about 10 feet, uh, and the average fly ball distance increased by about 10 feet. And you guys are familiar, you know, your 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 uh, compadre there, Mike Potters, or has done some research, and he shows that. He showed that home runs correlate very well to fly ball distance, not home run distance, fly ball distance. And the ball traveled on the average five to 10 feet further uh, due to the due to the uh, decreased rim resistance in 2019. Right. And of course, uh, the ball going just five to 10 miles an hour doesn't help guys like Stanton, who Giancarlo Stanton, who's just going to crush it out of there, helps guys like Kettle Marte, who will just get it over the fence, um, and it, it'll have a bigger disproportionate increase on their home run totals as compared to some of the really big boppers. Uh, it's also important to note. Yeah, um, you can say the same thing about park factors. I, I just yeah, should mention that. Right, right. Park right. factors do not apply to every hitter linearly, um, but that you know so. And, and, you know, Josh Bell, we don't, we, he gets an improved park factor going from Pittsburgh to National Stadium, but he's another guy. When he hit the ball, he hit the ball hard. So he may not actually realize the full extent of the on paper increase. So we'll see. Right. No, I'm glad I brought that point up because that is a good distinction that it works both for homers, for park factors, or anything. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about valuation here. And by valuation, I'm talking about taking a set of projections uh, and turning them into some kind of ranking or what we like to do on the show, an auction value. We play a lot of auctions here, and uh, we've said many times in the show, if you are drafting, compute auction values anyways. They'll give you your ranks, but it'll also tell you the distance between any player and the relative value. But anyways, how do you get them? Uh, you run a valuation exercise. There are three main uh, classes of methods. There's SGP, standing gain points, uh, Z-scores, and the PVM method. Uh, maybe, Todd, you can run us through uh, the highlights of some of the, each of those three and how they work, and maybe uh, we'll talk a little bit about pros and cons of each. All right, so first, I'm gonna, I don't call them values. Because I think value is past tense. Okay. We don't. I don't think we know the value. Right. We know the potential. So I will. I call them auction prices. Um, to me, because uh, and I know we, it's all semantics, and you know people go to their favorite dictionary and counter what I said, and I'll go to my favorite dictionary. Whatever. It doesn't matter to me by 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 calling it potential and by calling it a price. I don't care what the real definitions are. It hammers in the fact that they're not static. That they're not in stone, that they are they are a range and estimated guess, and uh, you know that's why I think I think the connotation is different. But and I, I accept the fact that they've been called values forever, so I no longer you know the older I get, you know I'm more you know whatever that you want to call it value that you know <laughs> I, I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yep, you know, yep. or, you know. Anyway, so um, SGP standing gains points is probably the most popular of the methods that are out there, and what valuation does is it awards 
it distributes the available dollars and that's by that it's the number of teams and the total the the, the budget for the auction usually 260 dollars it 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 distributes that budget over the entire uh player pool the draft worthy player pool so if there's in a 12 team league if you're drafting 23 players it awards them over 12 times 23 uh, so that the uh, those everybody can fill a legal roster with a player of at least one dollar well one dollar and above so but all the three systems so they're basically distributing the available budget over the draft worthy player pool according to you know their 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 percentage contribution of, of, of some particular unit some petition particular measuring device and SGP what the measuring device is if five home runs increase your or give you another point in the standings then for every five home runs a batter hits he earns one sgp right if 20 rbi if the if the difference in standings is 20 rbi and you know a guy has 10 more rbi projected than another guy he's awarded 0.5 more sgps than than the other hitter but that's kind of what you do is every player gets awarded sgps for the categories you will add up all the number of SGPs. So, you know, some players may have, you know, 15 SGP over the fifth, over the five categories. Others have, you know, 13.7 and, you know, negative 2.2, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the SGP are added up for the player pool and whatever the percentage of the SGP that each player contributes, he gets that percentage of the dollars and, you know, zero sum economy. So, when you, at the end of the day, you, you add up if there are, are um, 168 hitters in a in a 12 team 14 batter league, the 168th hitter is is given one dollar, and then it gets scaled upward based upon based upon the number of SGP. Standard deviation is similar in that each player is awarded. I don't know what is a standard deviation. We'll just call it a standard deviation. Um, whatever you know, a unit, however many standard deviations his projection is, you add up all the standard deviations of the positive player pool and the percentage, uh, all, the, the percentage that player uh, contributes to the total standard deviations is his you know air quote value or or price. P- uh, PVM percentage percentage value method. Here it's straightforward in that. It's not worrying about standings or standard deviations. You, if you hit forty homers, you, those those you're getting the credit based upon the total number of homers in the positive value player in the in the draft worthy player pool. If you steal thirty five bases, you get your stolen base dollars allocated based upon the percentage of stolen bases related to the entire pool. And then again, there's some, you know, some some algebraic manipulations to make the numbers, you know, logical at the end. But you add up the the categorical contributions, and that's how the 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 the, the PVM percentage value method. That's how it comes up with this. So it, it's you know um, measuring stick, if you will, is the is the the, the statistic itself, the percentage in itself leaving out some of the you know in the weeds things replacement and and some other things uh uh, uh, todd how do you make it so that the last one's one dollar etc marginal value um that's kind of the uh the rough 
review of the different systems. Right. No, great stuff uh, uh, about doing that. Uh, so the question, of course, is uh, which one do you prefer? Um, and uh, I'll tell you my perspective. I think it really depends on on what the league situation you're in. So uh, I'm, I'm an actuary, and we do uh, some analysis uh, when we're projecting losses, you know, fires that happen in buildings. And there's two types of analysis. You can do an experience and an exposure. Experience is saying, look at all the fires that happened in the past and see how often and frequently they came and how severe it was. But then there's number two called the exposure method, where you have – some policy limits and you have houses and you look at the industry and see how houses happen there with the value limits elsewhere and you apply it to your current portfolio so that if you let's say you I don't know got uh, more expensive buildings now you wouldn't be able to count on old experience because you don't have the same portfolio of houses but if you look at what the industry has done and apply it to what you have that's a better method so I like to use SGP for uh leagues that I've been in for a while where I know what the standings gain points are. I know that stolen bases are important. I know that it's very sticky. I know that it uh, that four, four stolen bases really gets you a lot. But if you're in a new environment, if you're in a new league totally, or if something about the baseball has changed dramatically, uh, I prefer the Z-score, the standard deviation method, because it's a more general term. You don't have to know how standings went. You just use the dispersion, the math inherent in the population, and that tells you how to distribute points. Um, do you agree with that, Todd? And, and what do you use? I agree with the, the principles, but I, um, I don't know if I should say the spoiler now or keep out. I'll, I'll keep the spoiler <laughs> to the end. Um, first, SGP is inherent. It's, it's terribly flawed. You don't start gaining points in a category until you eclipse the last place team. Right. 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 So what you've done, you use SGPs. Is the, the is the Homer in the steel SGB pretty close? Um, I don't think so. It, it, well, it, it, it is. It's uh, it, it's usually pretty. It, it may be it may be widening the past couple of years. I don't know how long you've been doing this sort of thing, but they they've historically they're pretty close. Uh, and the NFBC they're, last year, stolen bases were worth a, a lot more per stolen base than than uh, Homer. It, it has widened. It, it was closer. Now it's it's far. It could be double. Um. Okay. Well, close. the other. Okay. Well, that, okay. Now the other. The next question is the last place team in steals versus the last place team in homers. Are they close relative to the number in the category? No. The, the answer is no. No. Teams punt steals. Right, right. Teams don't worry about steals. Right. So the the barrier to start earning points is much lower in stolen bases. Right. Right. So that to me that that's the difference is that. If you if you sort of you can actually convert everything and I've written about it it was so many years ago at this point and if you you know figure out barrier SGPs what ends up happening is some of the barrier SGPs the amount of steals that a player gets just to start earning points well those some of those SGPs go into the barrier SGP of homers and RBI so at this point there aren't you know there aren't as many guys to use as an example but you know it used to be Billy Hamilton and 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 some stolen base only guys. I mean, I guess we can say Mondesi, but he he hit some homers too. Uh, you know, Malik Smith, uh, maybe, but he's no longer that relevant. But the point being, some of his SGP get 
put towards the barrier SGP of the other categories, and it just throws the whole thing off. Now, I'll, I'll, I, you know what? I'll save the final statement to the to the to the to the part of the spoiler. And I'm, so this is just this is a theoretical flaw. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not saying it's a practical flaw, which is kind of a hint towards a spoiler. And, and can I guess um, the spoiler, by the way? Can I guess it? Yeah. The spoiler yeah. is that all the methods are really the same in terms of uh, they're all taking some kind of factor per statistic and using it. You know, whether you generate it from uh, a standard deviation or not, you can make the each other meet if you scale something up or down. It, it, procedurally, they work the same. Is that the spoiler? Uh, no. All right. Well, that that's another spoiler. <laughs> no, it's not. And what you're saying is true. Yes, yes. Because I, when I when I wrote about SG, SGPs, I showed how you can uh, incorporate this barrier SGP uh, method into you know fixing the method, and when it's happening is the values kind of parallel PVM. Yep. So yep. real quick, my 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 issue with with uh, standard deviation is. It's wonderful. It's elegant mathematics, but how do we know that if a player's x deviations, x standard deviations, better than another player, that he's x much better for fantasy? We don't. I mean, there's no, there's no basis other than elegant mathematics that the math works out. We don't know that that you know whatever the number of standard deviations is better, he's going to improve your team by that same amount. Right. So. It's beautiful math, but I don't know if it, if it, it, what the basis is. So, and then the problem with the PVM, percentage value method, is we don't, you know, okay, so it's a, it's, it's awarding, to me, it's the truest method because it's, it's it doesn't, it's awarding percentage what it actually contributes, but the contributions aren't always linear. You know, uh, I just kind of mentioned how, stolen bases is, is set up differently. The the distribution within the stolen base category is, if, I'm sure you guys have seen it, where the, the bottom teams are kind of spread out, then they're bunched in the middle, and then they get spread out again at sure. the top. Sure. All the categories do that, but steals do that, you know, even more so. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you end up with, I don't know, you know, 75% of the you know seventy five percent you know PVM wise, you're going to get more points in home runs than you are in steals because the way that it's bunched in the middle. So even though to me it accurately reflects the percentage of statistics, that the, that number of stats don't always convert into the same number of roto points. Right. So now that my comment of all three systems has kind of been showing why they're flawed. Now that now now I bet you can guess the spoiler. They're all flawed. Valuations yeah, flawed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it's it's it, it projections are flawed. Valuations flawed. Uh, it's just it's it's not accurate. And I think people know that, especially people that listen to your your guys' podcast. They know you can't you can't sure. take a value and it's set in stone. They know it's a it's a range. It's a it's a you know a, a, a you know it's a gives you a hint as to what the player may go for that it depends what the market wants to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just, it's it just valuation unto itself is, is very much flawed. I use PVM because I, you know, at the, to me, the theoretical basis is the, the, the truest, 
I just I know that it doesn't it's it's not practical. Now the the thing I was going to mention with SGP, and I don't know the cause and effect, the chicken, the egg. You know, if if the market because SGP was so popular when it when when fantasy first started playing being played, still is popular. If if the if the market you know tendencies just became what SGP values were, but you know, as you guys know, when you do your auctions, there's an inefficiency. You know, steals people don't want to pay for steals. So even though the value in a vacuum says, you know, so and so's worth, you know, thirty dollars, people are not going to pay thirty dollars for a stolen base only guy. I don't know if it's because of, of SGP will price that guy at twenty five, or if it's just more game theory. But so the the practical aspect of it. An SGP list, to me, which is the most flawed, air quotes, theoretically, is probably the best practic- in practical sense because it best emulates what ends up occurring in auctions. Right, right. Yeah, well, we talked a lot about it uh, on last week's show with Tristan Cockeroff that a lot of the, uh, what is a, a va- an, let's call it an auction value since you said that, uh, what is it, a, an auction value, market value? It's what the market dictates, really. If a market is dictating that a stolen base is higher, well, that's what it's going to, you're going to be paying for that. Whether it's theoretically right, whether SGP tells you that, whether PVM tells you that, you're going to be paying more for it because it's valued more at the auction and you still need steals, right? You probably don't need to win a category, but you still need them. So, uh, no, this was a good dis- discussion. Uh, one more concept is as far as valuation, uh, in today's game, especially this year heading into 2021, where different platforms are having different rules for player positional eligibility, some platforms are having five games from last year, seven games, ten games, whatnot. There could be a lot more uh, multi-positional eligibility players uh, uh, this year more than anything. How do you deal with that in valuation? Are you draw, uh, taking the regular numbers and doing it as such, but everyone who has an extra position adding a dollar? Um, are you? Do you have a formulaic approach to give more value to positional eligibility players? Do you think there shouldn't be any more value given? I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on it. All right, so in a vacuum, um, the, the, the player themselves do not contribute more value, more stats more production to the team. What the multiple position eligibility does, it allows you to maneuver your lineup so other players can be on your, you know, better players can be on your roster. But you can't, you're not going to give that money to the better players or the other players. You know, if that player is allowing you to do that, he may not be earning it, but since he's allowing to do it, you know, you need to pay him for that ability. If you know what I mean, you're not paying him for the stats. You're paying him to allow other stats to get on your roster. Um, now the catch is, and I, I wrote about this during the break, and it was probably one of the most reviewed the break of uh, the delay of last season. I did a, a long, a long series of essays on RotoWire, uh, breaking down the 2019 uh, main event NFBC. Um, the use the usefulness of a multiple position eligibility player is contextual to the format. And which is why I don't universally bake it into my projections, into my my numbers, because it matters, the format matters. The, I mean, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, this loaded question putting in the spot. So I'm, you know, know, warning I'm gonna do it anyway. And the NFC main event, 
do you guys, or even the TGFBI, do you guys pay for, pay extra for, reach for, I know it's a draft, multiple position eligibility players? Do you target them? Ruben, we'll let you answer not, this one. Not, nece- not necessarily. I, I go for value, and if and the player happens to be multi-positional, that's fine. Maybe toward the end when I'm trying to fill spots and have reserves, I mean, I have my bench set up, then I'll start, start reaching. But by then, you know, you're at the bottom of the barrel. Um, but I don't. if you reach for it, you're going to lose value earlier on, and I don't like losing that value just to get a guy who has two positions um, more than once in another player. I agree with that, and I'd say in the middle it's more of a tiebreaker for me. I'll take the tiebreaker, the guy who has more eligibility. At the bottom, you can give an extra, a little bit of, a, of an oomph when, when you're picking bench players to pick the bench player that might give you more flexibility, but I don't really go overboard. And of course, the NFBC is the, the example of where it's a limited bench, and you need to use your bench. It's, it's, a, it's a non-trading league, and there's no injured list spots. If you did have injured List spots, of course. Then, if a player gets injured on your team, you put them on the IL. You pick up a new player on the waivers, and you can pick any position you want. So, multi-positional eligibility uh, helps you more. It should be valued slightly more in a format where you have a limited bench and no IL. Right? You you agree with that, Todd? No. You say valued more in a limited bench with no IL, or valued less? Valued more because if you have less maneuverability. The example you just gave is, I think, well. It should be valuing less. All right, so let me ask a, a, another quick question okay. about that. In the draft championship format, 50, t- 15, 50 spots, 15-team draft and hold, do you put a premium on multiple eligibility players? Not as much. I would think not. I don't play a lot of uh, that format, but I, I would think it's not as much because you do have a deep roster and can fill in, uh, fill in anywhere. They have, I think because you haven't played them very much it, 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 until you experienced it. It's the opposite. Um, you know, I can understand thinking that way. All right, so let me um, well, I go guess, back. Now, yeah, I guess maybe it is the opposite because if you have the ability to put a player at any position, then, well, you, you, you're helped by it. You don't have to play even a superstar who doesn't have a good week because you're, you know, some guy at the bottom with more eligibility jumped up. So I, I, I can see that as giving you more value. Well, in the... All right. So to, to to as far as the in the main event, the I say the the right answer, but the data the data shows that the championship teams, the teams that competed, did not target multiple eligibility players, and I found that to be to me the, the most eye opening because I originally thought you know I I want it, I want the multiple eligibility players, and you talked about leaving money, you know, le- you know profit value potential, whatever you want to call it, on the table. Well, the notion is. By drafting, uh, you know, Cody Bellinger over Freddie Freeman or whatever, you know, early on in the draft, because you have the flexibility to move Bellinger around, that you, whatever you lose, you make up for in in-season management. Um, That's the concept. Yeah. So, but Todd, but my my counter to that to that research of that. Well, though, I'm, I'm going to counter myself. Oh, okay. All right. Go go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. The show the this in, in the NFBC with a seven man reserve. And you've got a closer uh, in waiting. You've got two minor leaguers, and you've got three hurt guys, and you've got a streaming pit. You you don't have enough players, enough batters, to take advantage of the multiple position eligibility. So even though that you can move guys around, you, you're not going to be able to improve your roster because you just don't have the 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 the, the arsenal of available players to take advantage. 
So my other counter to that is if you're looking at who won the championship and whatnot, uh, part of the people who win the championships in the big uh, overall in the NFBC is because they had a lot of things go right. They didn't have that many injuries. If you have a team that is suffering injuries, you might have more of an advantage having those multi- multiple injury players. If you, you know, we, we talk a bit about COVID. Um, if if you have a lot of players on the St. Louis Cardinals from last year that all of a sudden didn't play, you would have been helped out if you had a, multi- a player with multiple eligibility. Now, to- no, not if you don't have an active player to take advantage. If you you can have all the eligibility you want, but if you if you don't have a player on your bench that you can put into your lineup because of that flexibility, then it doesn't do any good. That's the problem is that you, in, in the draft championships, when you've got 50 man rosters, you, you have the depth of the roster to get the strongest one out there every time, especially once injuries start to, to come in because every player with a multiple position plays, you know, is like two different players. Interesting. No, I'm glad we're having this discussion. Uh, um, I, I again, Ruben and I, as we said, we don't uh, we don't look for those multiple eligible players, except for at the end, you know, just to fill in. And, and I'll, they, uh, Ty, if you're looking at two players, right? If you're looking at two players and you don't know tiebreaker, they're all exactly equal, but one's eligible more than one position. Right. That's the tiebreaker. It's a tiebreaker. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it's also yeah, roster value for the. Based on value of the of a certain player, if, there's a, if that's the tiebreaker, then obviously you go with that. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, it's, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Right. So you're basically well, the other thing too is we're talking value early in the draft. The delta between consecutive players is pretty. You know, you're talking auction uh, auction prices could be right. two you know, two dollars, three dollars. Uh, once you get to the middle and end rounds, the difference is, you know, a dollar, and then towards the end, cents. Right. So jumping a guy up ten spots in the twelfth round is is a dollar, right? You're right. jumping him up a dollar in value. Jumping a guy up um, ten spots in the second round is five dollars. So it's just a lot. That's why you know later on you're not you're not leaving as much on the table by jumping a guy up the rankings. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about free agents. I'll go to Ruvain first for this. Um, so last year in 2020, obviously there was a smaller number of weeks, a smaller number of the weekly fab. So you had to allocate your pot of fab differently than most, just because there's less, fewer weeks. But aside from that, how did you experience fab that was it, how was it different for you than in other years? I think the fact that it was more of a sprint as opposed to a marathon that people spent their more, people spent more money earlier on and you had to be ready for that and spend the money early on because if you fall out of the contention right away it's very hard to make up a lot of those categories if you had some of those cardinals like i did you had to spend a lot of fab early to fill in those spots and it just screwed over your whole strategy for what you normally do for a fab and normally in a fab season i try to spread it out i tried to make sure i have money toward the end and everything like that but last year it, it, because it's so short and because you had little time to make up uh, uh, losses so early on, it, it, I think that that was the main difference that I saw. Todd, do you agree with that? And is there anything else that you saw? Yeah, but I think, yes, I agree with that. But I think part of the dynamic to that is the the number, the fab, at least in, in the, I think the leagues we're talking about, TGFBI, NFBC, you still had the same $1,000. And $1 is $1. If they had scaled down the fab to whatever, 333 or whatever it might have been, $1 is one 333rd of your total budget. 
whereas $1 is one one thousandth of it the way it was. So I think that just because of the, you have fewer weeks to spend it, but you have you know more dollars, I think that kind of drove up the prices at the beginning where, you know, all I need is a buck at the end. You know, I can, I can spend this money. You know, I, if I spend, you know, 900, I still, I can still buy a hundred players, but if you were to spend nine tenths of the 333, you, you still can't buy a hundred players. And I think, you know, it was just, it's kind of new to all of us. None of us really knew how we needed to budget, how we should budget it. Uh, so I think that, that, that just lent, you know, just made, it just added to an already crazy year. It just, was another aspect of it. It just, you know, added to the nuances and the fun of the frustration, whoever you want to look at it uh, of that particular season. But, um, in general, and I'm going to, you know, I credit where credit is due. I heard Rob Silver talking about this the year, uh, after he won the NFBC overall, how we budget budgets his fab. And I've been playing the main, you know, for years and years and never actually, did this i never was competing for the overall and you know and, and, and needed needed to do it as much if you will but he kind of said so you kind of work you know you kind of work backwards and you, you say to yourself i need i need x amount of dollars each week to just to, to manage my roster whether it's to buy a star, a streaming pitcher or or you know an injury i'm going to need whatever the number in your head that you want it to be ten dollars whatever it might be 15 five whatever that's up to you how you manage but so if, if it's a 26 week season and you figure you're going to spend $10 a week on roster management, you've got $260 of your budget just off the table. The most you can bid on any one player is 740 and still to still leave yourself with the $10 every week. So I, I, you know, doing that, it kind of sets the maximum how much you can spend each week. Of course, you're not going to spend $740 in the first week and, and only have $10 every other week. But to me, that that I never actually thought about it in that way. It's always, ah, I'll leave myself enough. Well, how much is enough? So I, you know, I went back at previous years and how much would I spend? And sure, you're not spending ten dollars every week, and some week you have to spend forty. But you kind of figure out on, on an average. So uh, I, I, first, I you know I, I do that. And I having I did that last year, and because there was a thousand dollar overall budget, you know, see, you know, that's why, wow, I can spend, I can spend a lot more early because I, you know, I'm going to spend the same $10 that I would have, you know, the, in any season, because I don't think numbers are going to change that much. So that's one thing, but then it's just a matter of, um, I, you know, to me, it's a, it's a matter of need and trying to figure out what your league is doing. I know our buddy, Jeff Zimmerman has a, grandiose plan to be able to predict fab bids and he publishes it you know every week and yep, god yep. bless him i love the outside the box thinking but i i you know i don't read it because i don't i don't think leagues are going to follow it i think it's more important to understand what your league does and and, and you know okay I, I need a closer this guy needs a closer every time a closer is up for bid this guy bids this much so i need to outbid him and bid this much uh to me that's a the better approach I have a few comments about Fab. Uh, well, first of all, um, I do agree with the allocation thing. I think it's important to leave you X for what you're going to do in September. I find myself with Ruvain, of course, um, that we like to have some two-star pitchers, some players with good schedules at the end. And you have to have a certain you have to you want to have the hammer at the end, and so you want to set yourself up for that. Uh, part of part of going with that is also making sure where you are in the pack, right? So if everybody in your league is spending very much 
uh, uh, right away, you know that you're going to be ahead of the pack. And right. you can probably spend a little bit more than you want because relative to the rest of the league, you'll still be good, right? You, you right. can't you can't just do things in a vacuum. You got to do it relative to the league, and of course, league history helps. But you can also manage it in season. The other thing that I'll also say is that in terms of spending, I find that these large, large bids, uh, there's very few situations that uh, spending. Forty percent of your fab on one player is going to completely fix your team. Um, I much more, I'd much rather go for a better return on investment on every dollar. Right? If if you spend a smaller amount and you hit on a player, you get a better return on investment. Right? If you if you spend a lot, you're not going to get a good return on investment no matter what you do because you're spending a lot. So I tend to w- want to make the bid not to win the player exactly, but to make the bid that will give me a good return on investment. And if I don't win every single player that I I, I bid on, it's okay. Uh, I'll I, I need to bid enough. Uh, if I if I have injuries, maybe I have to spend a little bit more. I'll get my fair share because not everybody is interested in the same players. But I'm mindful of my spending and I temper everything during the year. Of course, I want my dollars to count per player, and it gives me value and dollars at the very end. Um, what I'll say about the short season, though, is um, you to use another insurance uh, thing. Uh, when you're filing regulations with the government, and oh, I think our rates have to be this much this year. There's two procedures: you can do use and file, or file and use, where you file it first and you wait for the government to approve before you start using it, or use and file. You use it, you file it, and you if they disapprove you, then you stop. Um, you got to do that in fantasy. Sometimes you don't have time. You pick up the player because he had a hot week, and you pray that it's going to amount to something. You don't have time to wait, especially in the short season, for it to actually happen. So I think that's what happened last year. The question is, and I'll go with Ruvain first, is how much of that do you think is going to go uh, uh, and affect Fab next year? I mean, COVID is still around people might be churning their roster more because of injuries or people teams missing a week or two because of COVID. Um, do you think that some of those principles are going to apply and go over to 2021? I don't think a hundred percent because of the size of the, the st- size of the season, because it's going to be supposed to be a full season. I think we should go back to what it was in 2019. COVID is, was a quote unquote injury and that should be treated just like a regular in- injury. And a lot of leagues in general, not, not the money leagues, not the big money leagues like NFBC, but home leagues are adjusting already to that, creating more of a, an IL, more room for these players so that you can have more room like this. And I think that we should really go back more to the 2019 thinking as opposed to the 2020. Yes, there, there still may be some outbreaks and you may still have, still have these issues, but I think you have to treat it the same way, especially because if you look at the injury numbers, the injury numbers, if you take out the COVID-related um, absences, then the, the injuries were at the same pace as, as 2019, basically the exact, almost the exact same pace. That being said, it should be treated just like the 2019 season. COVID will happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen. It's just like a regular injury. So I think go back to 2019 and throw to that 2020 out the window because of the fact it was only a two-month season. Todd, what lessons are you taking, and are you going to change your fab to match some of what you saw in 2020? First, I'm going to I'm going to dis- not so much dispute, but disagree with Ruben's take there, uh, primarily from the point of view of a commissioner, in that it is just it's a nightmare running a private you know, a, a league among friends, workmates, whatever, uh, uh, within the COVID environment, because, you know, you, you, it, 
it might, it's probably not going to be as bad, but we don't know it. And then you're going to get requests for rule changes in midseason and this and that. And and it, it, to me, you want to just play it safe. What's it make make the rules whatever keep if you had a, a special a separate IL for COVID, keep it. If you have special uh, you know, rules for COVID, if you're allowing certain scenarios to for the player to be on an IL, keep the same rules for 2021. It's not a big deal. It's a, it's a it's a it's a private league. It just it, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be an escape. It's supposed to be uh, you know not burdensome, especially for the guy running the league. So I'm you know you know just kind of a comment. Now, I understand high stakes is a little bit different, and they didn't even make any changes last year. So obviously they're not going to make any changes this year. But I don't know. I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I'm gonna do a whole lot different with the way I handle Fab because I think you kind of alluded to it, Ariel, and I'm pretty sure you guys both do this. But to me, one of the one of the tricks with Fab is you want to be a week early, not a week late, on the player. You want to oh, get yeah. in on the player before the market is, because that's just cheaper. And usually, if you you look at the underlying numbers, and it, it may be that a, ball, a batter's in, in you know we have this data now a batter crushed a ball a particular week but just didn't get the results or a batter uh who's been in a slump didn't strike out as much a particular week but we just didn't see the results both of these portend to a uh, you know a, a hot week a good week so if i can find players who i think are you know haven't had that week yet but look like they're going to you don't have to pay much for them because chances are not everybody in the league is looking at, at those sort of players. And, you know, it's not the same thing, but you talk about streaming pitchers. I'd be willing to bet that you both take a look weeks in a, a couple weeks in advance. You bet. And if you have the roster spot, if it's not, if you have it available, you'll pick up a pitcher to stream, you know, a week before he actually has that two-start week. Yo, Just well, because yeah. the market's all less. And to me, that's a way to save fab that if you have that emergency scenario or if there's a really good player who just happens to fit your team really, really well and you think you really want them, you have the excess, or not so much excess, but you have the available fab at that point to air quote overspend because you were so good about getting the the, the cheaper players, the, the breakout players a week before everybody else. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it obviously it depends on your roster size and bench size, but I find that the uh, the return on investment for spending just a dollar on Fab the week before, just in the case that he becomes a closer or the hot week is really right or maybe the prospect will come up or whatever the reason is, uh, and then if it doesn't work out, you drop him two weeks later, that return on investment, that opportunity cost is much better than waiting till oh this guy is the closer now i gotta spend 150 dollars to get the guy you're gonna get more use out of just the one roster spot for two weeks and the one dollar fab than picking up the 150 dollar closer when you could have picked them up for a dollar the week before and you can do that with any spot at any time so i i agree with that and you can even talking cycling back to the park factors you can notice that a you know a, a fringe player has got a series coming up in colorado and then, you know, whatever, in another good park. And you know that the, the, the Sunday before that Monday series starts, he's going to go for a lot more fab than if you picked him up the previous week. So that, that it's just that's, yes. that's, to me, a way to use your fab smartly. And then you can be a little more reckless yes. when, when in an emergency situation. Absolutely. The schedule is your friend, and you should be using it. And the last question I have on fab is um, – 
and this is a really a tough question because there's no right, right answer, and often because of injuries that happen, uh, often dictated. What do you see yourself spending on more during the season? Is it taking advantage of the schedule? Is it getting the statistics? Is it the two-star pitchers? Is it the finding the high-skilled players? What do you find yourself spending more fab on during the season? I think it's pretty equal amongst all those back-end things. This is assuming, you know, again, it's contextual. I have the big injury, this, that, the other thing. Right. right. I'd I'd like to think that at least the plan is to spend fairly equally on those kind of the things that we've talked about and then adjust to the context uh, based on needs. If I, if my stolen base guy got hurt or sometimes it's not even that he got hurt. If you aim, I kind of explain how stolen base category is distributed. You know, it makes sense to try to aim towards the middle uh, because a few extra steals isn't going to get you that high. But at some point you notice, geez, you know, the way my category, my league is distributed. If I get another stolen base guy, I can get, this many more points, then you want to get that guy. So I, I think in theory, I'm going to spend it fairly equally on what we'll call it the smart buys, the double starts, the, the barks, that sort of thing. And then it's playing, you know, if a guy gets hurt, you got to, you know, you got to, you got to, you got to invest, especially if his backup's pretty good and you and, 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 you know, he, he got hurt on your team you know, you, 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 you may have to spend more because he's a good player, et cetera. So um, I don't know that I, you know, I can see where some, you know, some people are going to answer starting pitching. Uh, I think it's, 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 I kind of like this because I think, I think the hitting, I think using hitting, streaming hitting is an underrated aspect of playing, especially in FBC where there's two, two times a week, you know, Monday and Monday and Friday move. I think that's an underrated way of, of, of adding a few more points onto your roster is streaming hitting. Absolutely. Um, let's go to the mailbag. Let's go to Ruvain first on this one. Jeff Anderson asks, with the small sample size of 2020, any guys we should be buying into, uh, Corey Seager to Brian Hayes, or avoiding Benintendi or Semyon? Uh, what say you, Ruvain, about those guys? Now, those guys, very, 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 very wide range of variabilities with them. Corey Seager, his hard hit contact was up. His K percentage was down. That tells me you should buy into him, even if, even though it was a short uh, time. Plus, he has the pedigree. Okay, so he's been around for a couple of years, and you know what he was getting, and he's actually fully healthy coming back from surgery a couple of years ago. Cabrian Hayes, it's very hard to tell who, oh, with the rookies from last year. You need to see a full season because... During the course of the full season, usually pitchers adjust to these rookies who come up and they usually hit a wall. And some players last year didn't hit that wall. So you don't know how they were able to adapt to the new pitching. Now, when it comes to the players who were down, you mentioned uh, Andrew Benatendi. It was his fourth year. He's injured. He was injured. His hard hit rate was down, but the whole team struggled. So I think that he's a guy you can actually buy low on if there is a change of scenery. I think that he, he has something mentally. He has a mental block. That's my opinion on it. And I think that if there's a change the scenery, I think he'll do a lot better. And when it comes to Marcus Simeon, I've always been a high on him, but he's only really had two really good years. He's got a floor of about 250, about 250 15 and 10. Um, 
you know, but you can't throw out what we saw from last year. He didn't hit that well. And what are you getting? He's he's already in on the wrong side of 30. He's going to sign a contract in the next couple of days, probably. And we don't even know where he's going to play yet. So I'm, I'm a little nervous about Simeon. I'm a little nervous about Benintendi if he's still a Red Sox. And I'm a little nervous with all rookies from last year. Todd, do you agree, disagree on those? Yeah, I mean, to save, to save time, um, yes. Um, I'm going to make a more general statement. Actually, you know, I'm a Red Sox fan. I'm going to say that, Ruben, I'm going to say that Alex Cora coming back is a change of scenery. And while I understand what you're saying, I don't think we can undervalue, yeah, there's that word, uh, you know, un- understate the importance. You know, teams take on the personality of their manager, and not that Ron Renneke was a bad guy, but he wasn't exactly a fiery guy. And I think, and not that Cora is, you know, this 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 fire plug either, but I just think they mix they miss that. So assuming the whole uh, sign scandal doesn't affect that that aspect, I look for Raphael Devers and, and and some of these other players that were down a little bit to to pick it back up. I'm just you know worried a little bit about Benintendi in general, um, and 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 the, the same. But I think, and I couldn't you know reading the question, I couldn't tell if these were exactly these four players if we was just talking about anybody with a bigger you know a big breakout i want i want a reason and maybe it's subjective maybe it's an you know na- you know a narrative but i want a reason for either you know good or bad and base you know just not looking at the numbers and looking at looking at that so you know a guy like um all right zach plesak um i know he's you know i don't call it hot button but it, the very polar players that he's the way he's being drafted uh, very, very aggressively. And while I agree that Zach Plesak is better than I thought he would be, he has improved the skill set. We can, we can talk small samples, but extremes in small samples are often meaningful. He started eight games against a weak geographical zone against only five teams in that geographical zone. And he pitched three games on four days rest, standard four days rest, three games on five days rest, and two games on more than five days rest. Now, one of those games was when he was being punished and how much he was being thrown on the alternate side, I don't know. But he did progressively better with more rest. So let's see what Zach Plesak does against a tougher schedule throwing every fourth game. So here's here's an example of a breakout that I'm not I'm not buying into not because he hasn't done it before because I see some stuff under you know, uh, under the under the hood that scares me a little bit. So I'm behind the market on on Zach Plesak and sometimes you have to be willing to be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong. Todd, who would you rather have, Cabrian Hayes or Fran Mil Reyes for the same price? Oh boy. Um I guess I guess if I'm taking a shot, it'll be Reyes, but neither of them really fit my mode of players. I do like what we've seen from Cabrian Hayes, but he kinda he kinda like what we said about Plesak, he 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 batted against the weakest pitchers, you know, over a short amount of time. Let's see what happens. When he uh, when he sees a wider array of pitches, pitchers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if I recall, I, I I think I like Hayes's approach, the um, the, the the plate skills. I, I I think I like those 
which you know led me to you know believe in him but you know reyes uh the problem you know i just am not convinced he's going to play 150 games uh, I like Hayes, but I think there's just so much helium on him. He's going to pick 130. Uh, just such a small sample size for him to, to be going that much. I, I Just for the record, I like Fran Reyes so much more than Cabrian Hayes. It's not close, in my opinion. Uh, I'm, I'm, yes, you know, you're asking a year. We both may change our minds, but I'm with you. I mean, look, yeah, you know, yeah, the same yeah, yeah. area. Give me G or Shoa over, and it sounds like they're going around the same Area, give me your shallow over Hayes. A shallow may even be going later than Hayes if he's going one thirty. You know, I'll, I'll take Urshela over Hayes. Yeah, Urshela is going. Uh, no, he's going a little bit later than Hayes. Uh, but uh, I would rather have uh, Urshela than Hayes. Yep. And ATC projections agree. Uh, ATC projections are going to come out uh, next week, and you'll see all this for yourself. Uh, let's go to the next question here. It is from Morgan Day, who asks. It's a keeper question. It, it's an interesting one. He says, I am needing to extend Tatis in a 5x5 NL Roto Auction Keeper League. His current salary is $5, plus $5 for each additional year of control. What would you say is his floor over the next four or five years in that format? $20, $25? So it's a case where Morgan is trying to ask, how many years do you think he should keep Tatis for uh, with that scheme where it's $5 and then you add $5 each year to know, hey, should I give Tatis a four-year contract, a six-year contract, such that it's pretty much arbitrage that you're always going to win? What would you do with Tatis? Would you give him a five-year contract or more, uh, Todd? I, I mean, I understand what he's thinking, and you can approach a different matter, you know, the floor. I don't know. I look at him. He's going to be a $40 player over – the course of what we're talking about for the contract so then it's just a matter of how much do, how, how you know how good is my keeper list now is my window two years is my window three or four years is, you know so it's it's all contextual but i don't want to look at it in terms of floor how much how much you know potential profit do you want and you know of course you, you expend them you know if you if you make them a thirty dollars you're, you know, in theory, I'll knock on wood, you're going to get 10 to $15 worth of profit. Uh, you, you're going to get it for, I mean, some people turn it into a math problem. I get $15 of profit for five years. There's $75 of total profit. Uh, if I extend them just, you know, three years, it, I'm, I'm making numbers up, you know, three years, uh, and it costs me $20. And I'm now getting, uh, you know, potentially, you know, $30 of profit over three, you know, $90 of profit. You know, that's the better deal. I, to me, it's it's kind of a touching, you know, it's more of a feel thing. It's more art than science, and it's based upon my roster itself. Um, and, you know, the the risk, I mean, he's help, if he's healthy, he's going to, you know, at least $40, could be closer to $50, although I believe this is an NL only, probably not as much. But, uh, you know, I, I want, and I also trust myself that if I got Tatis, I'm going to get somebody else in a couple of years. That's you know a, a nice bargain. So I like the extra profit and trusting myself to find the next Fernando Tatis on my team. So I'm more likely to, to undershoot it than some other people are. But um, I you know I, I can't see whatever the twenty five dollar number is the years is. I can't see going less than that. Yeah, I would say about five years. I think the uh, trading aspect could be something because I, you, you don't know where you're going to be in three years. Maybe in three years you're going to rebuild and you you might have a very affordable contract for somebody. Uh, you, you should rig it so that you can get maximum trade value at any point, I think. I think that should be a factor. Anything to add, Ruvain? 
Yeah, I think I'd go on the lower side of that because he's going to max out his profit in three or four years. I, I think his 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 floor is maybe 30 homers, 50 stolen bases between a 268, 270 average. That's his floor. I mean, at, at some point, if you keep adding money to it and his contract is getting more expensive, he just he's just not going to be worth it. It's going to be too expensive. And just like Todd said, you can get someone probably – you can get more profit from somebody else even a shorter time down the road. All right, last question. Long Island Tony asks, this one's for Todd. Todd, what are your favorite flyers post-300 ADP? All right, so I I got the question advanced little homework. I'll just rattle off some names. So if you're listening at 1.5 times speed, slow her down now. (laughs) Um, On the batter side, uh, Alex Dickerson, CJ Crone, Corey Dickerson, Cesar Hernandez, Edward Olivares, and Jared Oliva. Are, are some guys that I, I like, and there's some various reasons why they're post-300. Dickerson injury, Crone, where's he going to play? Cesar Hernandez is always disrespected. And Oliveras and Oliva, I like as we talked about how do we handle steals. I love those guys as reserve or, or late-round steals guys uh, to supplement. Now, the pitchers, I found more. It's just I think we, we both probably have more pitching just because the natural way we like to play. Caleb Smith, Yusei Kakuche, who I think is probably the, the top target on the list. Tanner Rainey for closing. Josh Lindblom, I like the underlying metrics. Desclafani, we talked a lot of park factors. I think there's some uh, some park factor stuff going on there. Uh, Trevor May, um, Diaz has the closer stuff. He should, but I'll, and I know it's a new management, but they read the papers. You know, one one bad stretch and Trevor May could close. Austin Gomber, like what I saw at the end of last year. And Dakota Hudson being out, the the, the shot we should be there. Merrill Kelly, concerned about the the coming back from the injury, but I really liked what I saw uh, when he was healthy. And why not? Michael Waka, it's as as I as my Rotowire uh, Boston colleague uh, referred to it in a piece this week, it's appealing to authority in in that meaning. We trust Tampa Bay what they can do. They saw something in Michael Walker. We're gonna. I'm gonna trust. I'm gonna trust that. I'm gonna trust their trust, and and and, and potentially take a shot. That's probably more of in a, uh, you know, the draft championship format when you're you know 35th round and looking yeah, for a pitcher. Yeah. Um. So. Right. That's right. the list. You can put the 1.5 again. <laughs> no, thanks for that, Todd. It's great stuff, everyone. Uh, yes, and uh, listen to that a couple of times so you get all of them. Um, and uh, hopefully you won't play in a league with Todd because uh, he's, he's kind of good here uh, knowing his stuff. Uh, let's go with the uh, injury report from Ruvain. Uh Hit it. All right. Well, we got a couple of updates here. Um, Mitch Hanniger, he had a he had multiple injuries the last couple of years. He actually resumed full baseball activity. He missed all of last season. If you want to take a flyer on him, he's definitely out of the th- over 300 ADP. He's someone to look for and maybe take a, a flyer on. Tom Murphy, um, he missed all of 2020 also with a, with a fracture in his foot. Um, he's now participating in full workouts, and he's good to go. Brett Honeywell, he underwent a minor procedure earlier in Jan- actually in January, and he is ex- not expected to miss or have any issues with availability in 2021. It was considered a, quote-unquote, truly a minor procedure. Take that whatever you want it to mean. Um, but he just wanted, Honeywell himself wanted to eliminate any doubt that there's anything going on in his elbow. And another guy who you can take a flyer on as well, out of the, he's already passed 400 ADP, Gregory Polanco. He actually fractured his wrist in the Dominican 
uh, winter league. He's expected to be ready by spring training. Recovery time for that is usually four to six weeks. He's only 29. It seems like he's been around forever. He's only 29, and he still has this quote-unquote potential. To, to add on to Polanco there, if any of you guys use StatCast, check out his, his hard hit rates from last year. He struck out a ton, but when he made contact, he crushed it. So I'm with you. I'm, uh, I'm taking my shots on Polanco as well. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. I want to thank you so much, Todd, for coming on. Um, this was a fantastic episode. A lot of information, a lot of theoretical stuff, a lot of math stuff. You definitely challenged and gave counterpoint along the way. So this is a lively episode. And thank you so much for coming on. No, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, uh, keep it going. I'm really happy to be on. Me, uh, it's podcast season, so you guys, I, you guys are my first. So I'm happy that uh, happy that you guys beat the crowd and, and, and got me. So it's it's a uh, good times. So. Oh, we're so we're so glad to have you. Why don't you tell the audience where we can uh, everyone can read you, follow you, and all where we can find all good things, Todd Zola. All right. Well, do, how much time do we have? No. Um, <laughs> Actually, it's been pared down a little bit. Uh, Masters Ball is the is the home base, is the mothership. Uh, I have my own subscription service there. Uh, I write uh, freelance for, kind of mentioned already, RotoWire. And you mentioned Tristan, ESPN. I uh, work with Tristan and Eric and AG Mass over at, uh, I, do some, I do some behind the scenes and in front of the scenes work uh, for ESPN. I do a, uh, a, not this weekend, but depending when you're listening to it, soon enough, uh, back on Sundays on Sirius XM Fantasy with Jeff Erickson, we're going to be doing our our Sunday afternoon show fantasy, and I'm, I'm already doing on MLB Network Radio with Clay Link every Saturday, uh, five to six p.m. Eastern. Clay and I do an hour, not the not the not the fantasy channel, but MLB Network Radio. Clay and I uh, talk there. We'll be doing a podcast with Clay every Friday coming up, and. Um, can be found on Twitter. And one real, real quick is, is recently I uh, I began I took over the the Roto Junkies um, forum, and basically I know Twitter's great, and but I'm a forum junkie, and it's it's it, it, a lot of history on the Roto Junkies. It, it spawned uh, it spawned Paul Sporer, who you may or may not have heard of. Never heard of him. It, it spawned Jason Collette, who, who I took over for running the administration from. So anybody out there that wants to have some uh, baseball talk off of Twitter, I can't promise you it's going to, you know, be, uh, you know, nicey-nicey the whole time. There's a lot of political talk on the forum as well. But if you want some baseball talk, uh, if you go to rjbullpen.com, R, you know, rjbullpen.com, it'll redirect you to the forum. You can register and you can get, you know, do some uh, off Twitter, off Facebook uh, baseball talk. And I can't promise you that I'll contribute, but I am now the overseer and I, 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 I will, I will poke in once in a while. Oh, so much stuff there. Um, Ruvain, why don't you tell us where we can, uh, read your stuff? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB injury guru, where I tweet out weekly and daily updates of injuries as they come out. Um, I also have a weekly in-season article on Rotoboiler detailing all these, all the injured players as well, which will be starting up actually in a couple of weeks. And my name is Ariel Cohen. You can read my work over at Ro- Fangraphs, Rotographs, uh, CBS Sportsline, and Rotoballer. The ATC projections are going to be coming out in just a few days. Uh, this year, we're going to be having some volatility statistics. Now, what I mean by that is that since I look at a number of different projections underlying, there are some for some players, projections agree a lot. Some projections 
uh, some players' projections do not agree. They're all over the place. So there's going to be a sense of volatility around how tight projections are. There's also going to be a skewness, right? There could be some projections that are some players that projections just go up. Some of them just go down. So we're going to put some volatility metrics so you can best understand the variance surrounding what I look at each and every year. Uh, that's coming this week. They're going to be on Fangraphs. Stay tuned. It is going to be ATC drop week, uh, the best week of the year, other than uh, probably playing your fantasy baseball drafts and playing the whole season. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, very exciting week. We're very excited here. And uh, that's coming up real soon. All right. Well, that's it from us for the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. want to thank Todd Zola, our guest tonight, for being on the show. ATC projections coming soon. And from all of us here, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.